Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Rachel in Indiana gives us a call. She has a question that many gardeners in the East and Midwest would like the answer to. How do you control Japanese beetles? This voracious pest feeds on hundreds of backyard plants and agricultural crops, and it especially likes roses. We talk with a master rosarian who has some control tips. The plant of the week. It has a rather gruesome name, the oxblood lily. Yet, it's a beautiful and widely adaptable bulb that's starting to put on its annual show. Warren Roberts of the UC Davis Arboretum tells us all about it. It's on episode 133 of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. Hi, Fred. This is Rachel. I'm from Indiana in Zone 6B. I have a problem with Japanese beetles and they're invading my roses and hardy hibiscus. Can you please tell me how to get rid of them and how to prevent them from coming back? Thanks. It's not only Rachel, it's a lot of rose growers east of the Mississippi and even more who are having problems with the Japanese beetle. Japanese beetles are no strangers to the East Coast and parts of the Midwest. Here in California, the authorities have done a very good job of controlling them and keeping them uh, out of our gardens, but it's an ongoing battle. Uh, even locally, they, they spray for Japanese beetles uh, infestations, especially the grubs, because they know the damage Japanese beetles can do. They are serious pests of roses, grapes, raspberries, many ornamental trees and shrubs. In fact, they'll eat the leaves, the flowers, and fruit of about 250 different plants. They're a shiny metallic copper color, sometimes described as greenish brown. They're about a half inch long, so they're really small. A lot of people confuse them with the green fruit beetle, which is much larger, uh, which is about two inches long. But the Japanese beetle itself, smaller than a penny, about a half inch long. And it's around now that you see the adults, but the damage begins way before you see the adults. Somebody who knows something about Japanese beetles and roses is the president of the Sacramento Rose Society, Master Rosarian, and garden writer, Debbie Arrington. Debbie, Japanese beetles, aren't we glad they're not here in California? Knock on wood. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and the state of California has spent millions to make sure they don't come in. Uh, whenever just a single bug, a Japanese beetle is trapped, they go on the offensive, and that garden is quarantined. We've had a few cases in Sacramento over the last several years where uh, just one or two individual uh, beetles will be trapped and it, it gets a whole offensive against that, that beetle because of what it would mean to our, our wine industry in particular. Yeah, you've talked with uh, rosarians from throughout the country, and I'm sure you sympathize with uh, their issues when it comes to Japanese beetles. And uh, it, every rosarian, every rose grower I've ever talked to is basically very fond of uh, their favorite tool, which is their thumb and, and forefinger to squish them. 
<laughs> yes, uh, that's usually the most efficient way to do it. Uh, preferably wear wear gloves. Uh, but with with Japanese beetles, it's like a lot of bugs that are eating your plant. Probably the the least harmful way for your garden and for yourself is to take a bucket of slightly soapy water, put it underneath the the plant, and then shake the bush. Just give it a nice little shake, and the beetles will drop right into the water, and they don't swim. Yeah, I was reading about uh, the defensive mechanisms of Japanese beetles, and apparently they're kind of like possum that will play dead if they sense an intruder. With Japanese beetles, they just sort of fall to the ground. So if you keep that bucket underneath the shrub and shake the plant, they just fall right in. Yes, it makes it very convenient. And that way you're also not harming your beneficial insects, which are a little bit better at flying. Yeah, and exactly. When you start using non-selective pesticides to control a pest, you're going to be uh, killing off the, the good guys as well. And you don't really want to do that, especially around roses, because there are several beneficials that go after Japanese beetles, including assassin bugs and certain parasitic wasps. Mm-hmm. And those beneficial insects are vital to the health of your roses. So even though the Japanese beetles are a real pain, um, it's it's better to take a non-chemical approach to their control, at least as far as the adult beetles are concerned, than to start spraying a lot of chemicals. Also, the chemicals that you have to spray to get rid of the beetles will get rid of everything else, including your bees. And so you don't want to do that. No. It's, it's much better to go ahead and flick off the adult beetles into a bucket of water, or better yet, to go after the grubs. Exactly. And that's where the problem begins. That's why I mentioned that the problem begins long before you see the adults, because the grubs are in turf areas, especially. They love the roots of turf. So if you can get them when they're young as grubs, there's better ways of controlling future populations. Yes, because the generations are in the grass Usually in the turf that's growing next to your roses, not underneath the roses themselves. Because they love turf, because Japanese uh, beetles are the the grub stage is so fond of turf. One option, and this would be my first option if I was having problems with Japanese beetles on roses. If I had areas of turf or lawn between my rose bushes, I think I'd get rid of the lawn. That is definitely a good strategy because the, the lawn is serving as an incubator for all those future Japanese beetles to just come out in June and July and eat your roses. Um, and they don't just eat the, the roses themselves. They skeletonize the leaves and, uh, you know, can really damage the plant because without the leaves, the plant can't get any energy to make new roses. Yeah, Japanese beetles uh, can do serious damage uh, to plants. The, the grubs can do serious damage to your lawn as well. And one strategy is to look for the grubs in the lawn. Uh, Cornell University recommends taking out an, a square foot of lawn, maybe, or, or the width of a shovel head. If you have a flat-headed shovel, that's usually about eight inches wide. And just cut out a square, go down about six inches or so, bring up that chunk of turf, the root area and the soil below, and then start counting the grubs that you find in there. And if you find eight to 12 grubs per square foot, then treatment may be worthwhile. If it's a smaller population, maybe you don't have to. Well, it's that's one of the things uh, in Indiana, which this color is from, is that th- those beetles are already pretty well established. Um, and it can be a lot of, of work if you if you only have a few. But if you've got a, a large population forming, the, those guys can create a critical mass and eat an awful lot of plants. 
And there are ways that you can treat them while they're in the lawn that's much more effective than treating them on the bush. One of the ways they do here when they do have an infestation here, when, and it's not so much infestation, just a siding, uh, is they use a larvicide that's called a celeprin. And the commercial name is Grebec. It says it's not harmful to people or pets, and it disrupts the digestive system of the little larva. That way they basically eat it, and then they don't want to eat anymore, and then that's the end of them. So it's, it's a good way to try to stop this whole cycle of beetles coming back year after year. Because that's really the key to control, is you can't control Japanese beetles in just one, one season. It takes a lot of, of work for a long time to finally get them out of your yard. And there are even beneficial nematodes that you could put in your lawn area to help control the grubs as well. I, I think in particular, the Steiner Nema species of parasitic nematodes seem to provide some control. And there, there's a lot of research still going on on this, that uh, beneficial nematodes uh, can do a pretty good job of controlling Japanese beetles. So that research is ongoing. There's a lot of different ways to try to attack this pest. So, they, you know, so it's not a absolutely hopeless situation, but it's one that takes them persistence. By being watchful of your plant, uh, go out every day and look, because it's, it's one of those things that if you're, if you're just doing some observation, it's much easier there to go out and flick off the beetles and then to make sure they don't get a, a foothold on your plant than to try to combat a situation where they're already have a full-blown infestation. Exactly. Yes, exactly. I will, In the show notes for uh, today's uh, episode of Garden Basics, I'll be providing the links to Cornell University's uh, uh, fact sheet on Japanese beetle control, as well as uh, one from the USDA. And there's a lot of good information in there that you may want to try, including uh, perhaps uh, there has been some research done on companion planting to repel the beetle. Chives, garlic, and white geraniums but again, um, it's not scientifically proven. It's uh, basically gardeners' personal experience where they've had some success with that effort. Well, it's, garlic works wonders around roses as a companion plant. It, uh, it's very effective in warding off all sorts of other type of bugs, too, because bugs, they, they land on it first and nibble on it, and they don't like it, and they go somewhere else instead of just continuing on to the rose bush. So it's a pretty effective companion plant. Now, the problem with planting garlic underneath your roses is that you want your roses to smell like roses, not like garlic. <laughs> you know, so it's, it can be a little problematic. Um, I, I think the white geraniums might be a better choice. But the white, I'm not sure the white geraniums are hardy uh, in Indiana. So they might, might have to be treated as annuals. My, um, my thinking is it would just attract another pest, the geranium budworm. Yes, that's true. That's true, yeah. Yeah, but uh, if it's not attacking the the rose, then you know you're you've got a um, at least like a trap plant or something. Anything you buy to control Japanese beetles, be sure to read and follow all label directions. But uh, starting with uh, an integrated pest management approach of mechanical, physical, and cultural controls can can help you win the battle, and that includes that bucket of soapy water and getting rid of lawn area. Those are two strategies that have been proven effective in the past. And just keep them out of California. There you go. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm not sure how they get. Well, I know how they get here. They're hitchhiking. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's one of the reasons there are controls about uh, shipping plants from states with Japanese beetles 
to uh, California because he'll hide in the soil. And again, there are a lot of natural predators that eat Japanese beetles, even birds. Uh, I understand starlings will eat uh, Japanese beetles, but there are several other bird species that will eat the larvae in your lawn, too. So don't discourage mm-hmm. the birds. On another topic, I realize all gardening is local. But is yes. there is there any rose variety that you grow or are aware of that gets rave reviews across the country? Oh, that does well everywhere. Oh, it's uh, landscape roses that they're developing are fantastic for the Midwest as well as California. They're they're from California originally, but oh, the Drift series, uh, the Knockout series. There's several different landscape roses that they are, and the, what makes them great is that they're fungal resistant. And so their foliage stays beautifully green and clean year round, even in high humidity situations. Uh, They look fantastic. And I've noticed also, which is uh, kind of uh, an odd thing, is that their their foliage is looking good, even with the high ozone of wildfire smoke (laughs) in the air. Um, I'm having a lot of problems with that right now, where the ozone is affecting the foliage on my roses. But the landscape roses' uh, leaves are just beautifully green and clean, um, and they, they look fantastic. They're, the roses, uh, and they're getting a lot more colors and forms, so they've got a lot more versatility. They tend to be smaller roses uh, because they're grown for uh, landscape use. Those would be very well recommended to anywhere. Knockout roses, the drift roses, they're also called ground cover roses. Uh, they are excellent choices uh, that... Uh, I won't say they're bulletproof, but uh, darn, they sure do well throughout the country. Yes, and uh, another positive on them is that they're self-cleaning, which means that you don't have to deadhead. They Once the, the rose is spent, it just drops off the bush. A lot of good roses, and uh, out here, they're Japanese beetle-free, we hope. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. And uh, Rachel, back in Indiana, we hope we gave you some good ideas. And again, I'll have a couple of links in today's show notes with even more controls uh, for Japanese beetles. Debbie Arrington, Master Rosarian, president of the Sacramento Rose Society, author, along with Kathy Morrison, of the excellent Northern California garden blog called Sacramento Digs Gardening. I don't care where you live. You ought to just subscribe to it just for the Sunday recipes alone of, <laughs> of things you can do with that all that produce you're producing in your backyard every year. So uh, check out Sacramento Digs Gardening. I believe you're on Facebook. Yes, we are. Okay, and and the website is? It's sacdigsgardening.blogspot.com. S-A-C, sacdigsgardening.blogspot.com. But again, uh, if you just do an internet search on Sacramento Digs Gardening, I bet something will pop up. It will come up, yeah. Yes, exactly. And like I say, just get it for the (laughs) recipes. They're great. Well, thank you. Debbie Arrington, thanks so much for the Japanese beetle information. You're most welcome. Thank you, Fred. We're glad to have SmartPots on board supporting the Garden Basics podcast. SmartPots are the original award-winning fabric planter. They're sold worldwide. SmartPots are proudly made 100% in the USA. I'm pretty picky about who I allow to advertise on this program. My criteria, though, is, is pretty simple. It has to be a product I like, a product I use, a product I would buy again. 
And Smart Pots clicks all those boxes. They're durable, they're reusable. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value stores nationwide. To find a store near you, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. It's Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred for more info and that special Farmer Fred discount on your next Smart Pot purchase. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. Because there are so many demands on your time these days, well, I like to keep the Garden Basics podcast to under 30 minutes. But still, there's a lot more to tackle on all the garden subjects we bring up on the podcast. So for that and a lot more, we're starting up the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It'll be on Substack. It'll go into more details about what you just heard on the latest podcast. For instance, the August 31st newsletter has more Japanese beetle control information. And for those of you here in California and other parts of the West who think you're seeing the Japanese beetles, chances are it's probably its much bigger relative, the green fruit beetle. We have information about that pest as well in the newsletter. Also, we'll have a picture of the plant of the week, the oxblood lily. And just for the heck of it, a lot of maps explaining USDA gardening zones, as well as a more complete reference for figuring out what can grow in your region, it's the Sunset National Garden Zone maps. As the newsletter grows, so will the subject matter. So yes, it will be a good supplement for the Garden Basics podcast, but there will be a lot more garden-related material, and, uh, you know, probably pictures of my dogs and cats as well. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. It's on Substack. And best of all, it's free. There's a link in today's show notes. Or just go to Substack.com and do a search for the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. That's Substack.com. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred newsletter. Did I tell you it's free? It's free. Every week, we like to talk with Warren Roberts out at the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. Find out about a plant that just might be putting on a show right now where you live. A lot of good plants to choose from. I, Warren, I don't understand how you can just limit it to one plant, the, the plant of the week. And today, it is. It, this might be something a little different for a lot of people, the oxblood lily. Yes, the oxblood lily. Uh, the botanical name is Rhodophiala like rhododendrons start out, Rhodophiala bifida. And it's native to Argentina and Uruguay, where it is somewhat endangered because of urbanization and, and such. But it was brought into uh, the South, particularly, I think, into um, uh, into Texas by um, a German colonist of Texas at the end of the 1800s. It became very popular there. There's a, a cultivar, which is evidently originated in Texas, which is really, really super easy to grow and survives in in areas with a little summer rainfall with uh, without any care. Sometimes the only evidence of a long disappeared garden is a straight line of, <laughs> of the oxblood lily that defines the edge of a path, say. And it's new, kind of new to me. When I moved to Davis to work in the Arboretum in, in 1972, 
there was a uh, a professor uh, of, on the campus uh, who had some in his garden. I didn't know what it was. I recognized it as similar to Hippiastrum, which is the uh, so-called um, amaryllis, the kind that has the big red flowers or white flowers or what have you for the end of the year. It's not an amaryllis. It's a Hippiastrum. And I knew it as a wildflower in the mountains of Peru when I lived in Peru. It's about 9,000 feet, which is only halfway up in Peru. Then I found this beautiful flower growing in a garden here in Davis, California. It was new to me. The professor that owned the garden told me what it was, and I fell in love with it. I have a big patch of it growing at my uh, place out in the country in Yolo County, California, and I don't give it any care, really. The only disadvantage of the flower is that they don't last a really long time, I think three, four days at the most, but they keep producing new stems with new flowers. And when the flowers fade, they, they, they do so more or less gracefully. So it's good for a, a, a flower show for about a month, I'd say. And right now in, in my garden, it is, it is spectacular. I have it growing next to a, a lantana monovidensi, which is another South American plant. You wouldn't want to plant them close together because the lantana would overwhelm the rhodophiala, I think. But it's a it's a great uh, great plant. It's, it has a couple of varieties, but those are not as vigorous as the one that's in the trade. It's uh, called oxblood lily, and it's a common name pretty much throughout uh, where it's grown in the USA. In South America, it's called Asusenita roja. Asusena is a word, one of the words for lilies. It's related to the word Susan, the, uh, the, the girl's name, Susan, which actually means lily in Hebrew, I think. Mm. Anyway, Asusenita Roja is the common name in Spanish. It's best in, in really hot areas if you can give it a little bit of shade in the afternoon. The flowers will last longer. It's related to Hebranthus pedunculosus, and it will hybridize with that. But the... Uh, and we Google it. Take or look, look at it, look. Take a look at it on the web, and and see how spectacular this thing is. It's not that tall of a plant, though, is it? What about a foot tall? Yeah, not much more than a foot tall. If it's growing with something else, it'll get a little taller, and it quickly multiplies. The bulbs are beautiful. They're dark black. They have a long neck, and then they produce a kind of a spirally arranged set of offsets. So it it propagates itself, and then you'll have to, uh, some to, uh, to some to share or to plant elsewhere in the garden. It is a rather trumpet-shaped flower. I bet it attracts hummingbirds. It certainly does. In fact, I was watching hummingbirds dance around in front of it uh, recently. Uh, yes, a perfect magnet for hummingbirds. They evolve together. Hummingbirds, uh, red is a color that birds see really well. And the flower is kind of trumpet-shaped, just, just the right shape for the uh, hummingbird's bill to reach in and get the nectar. I, I, I cannot vouch that the flower is the color of oxen blood, having never <laughs> slaughtered one. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's a, it's a colorful name, oxblood lily. Oxblood lily, and the flower color is a dark red, very dark red. And so I guess that uh, it's a blood-like. 
in, in color. It is widely adaptable through USDA's 7 through 10, so most of the Sun Belt going up the Atlantic coast. And we were talking about this before the show, and you pointed out that if you plant the bulb, and due to its growth, you don't want it to be subjected to early frost or freezes. So you, you want to plant it in an area where those freezes might come a little later in, in the year. Or, or keep it in a pot and move it indoors in in the winter. And the, the foliage is very pretty. It's bright green. Uh, the, the leaves get about a uh, little more than a foot tall. And so it's a, it's a nice-looking plant, even indoors. And when I say indoors, I mean a very bright, brightly lit situation. And as soon as, as danger frost is passed, move it outdoors and uh, and enjoy it. The leaves die down in the summer. They disappear, basically. And then in uh, in August September, the flowers the, 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 uh, come up rather quickly and bloom, and then followed quickly by the by the leaves. It tolerates uh, rather poor poor drainage and also rather dry situations as well. And as you pointed out, uh, full to part sun in hotter areas probably give it some afternoon shade. There you go. One of my favorite books about bulbs is Scott Ogden wrote a book called Garden Bulbs for the South, a great horticulturalist from Texas. And this is a beautifully researched and illustrated book. All right. The Roto... I'm going to try this. The Rotofiala bifida, the oxblood lily. Warren Roberts, thanks for telling us about that. You're welcome. I should point out, Warren Roberts is the superintendent emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum and Garden, which is open for your strolling pleasure seven days a week, 365 days a year. Next time you uh, visit Davis, California, you ought to drop by and pay a visit to their website. You're going to learn a lot about the Arboretum at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Warren, thanks again. You're welcome, Fred. Are you thinking of growing fruit trees? Well, you probably have a million questions, like which fruit trees will grow where I live? What are the tastiest fruits? How do I care for these trees? The answers are nearby. They're just a click away with the informative fruit tube video series at DaveWilson.com. That's Dave Wilson Nursery, the nation's largest grower of fruit trees for the backyard garden. They've got planting tips, taste test results, links to nurseries in your area that carry Dave Wilson fruit trees. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. The Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast has a lot of information posted at each episode. Transcripts, links to any products or books mentioned during the show. Plus, you can just listen to the portions of the show that interest you. It's been divided into easily accessible chapters. There's other helpful links for even more information, including info about the new Garden Basics newsletter. And just like the podcast, it's free. Plus, you'll find more information about how to get in touch with us. Leave an audio question without making a phone call via SpeakPipe. Go to speakpipe.com slash garden basics. It's easy. Give it a try. You can also use your phone to call or text us the question and pictures. 916-292-8964. 916-292-8964. And you can email us, fred at farmerfred.com. 
And if you tell us where you're from, that's going to help us out greatly to accurately answer your garden questions. Because as I'm fond of saying, all gardening is local. In the show notes, you'll find links to all our social media outlets, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And there's a link to the FarmerFred.com website. And if you would please, if you hear something you like on the podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics is available wherever podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple, iHeart, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, Google, Podcast Addict, Castbox, and Pocket Casts. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.